People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Elise Muselis is a certified eating psychology and nutrition expert, creator of the Food Story platform, and the popular blog Kale and Chocolate. As an author, speaker, health coach, and podcast host, Elise's mission is to empower women to create a healthier relationship with food and their bodies by changing what's on their plate and what's in their minds. Today, we're going to talk about her new book, Food Story, Rewrite the Way You Eat, Think, and Live. I'm so thrilled to have you. We're excited about your new book, which we're going to get to. But first, I just thought we could start with your life story, a little bit about you, where you grew up, your family, and how you made the pivot from being an immigration lawyer to becoming a certified eating psychology and nutrition expert. So that's a lot in one question, but let's just start with you. I grew up in LA. That was probably where the seeds were planted for my interest in health and my passion for wellness. And I would say that I was very interested in health and wellness, but now looking back, understanding my food story, it was borderline obsessiveness, which is like really just being overly and hyper-focused on doing the right thing and finding the perfect diet and all of that. My dad's a lawyer and I ended up going to law school and I loved helping people. I actually liked in when I was in law school, I liked doing all the volunteer immigration cases. You don't make very much money, but it sure feels good. (laughs) And at some point I realized that as much as I loved helping people stay together, the way that the law worked and it became much more stringent, some of the cases I was working on, the families unfortunately weren't kept separate because they couldn't all stay here in the States. And it was really hard, especially when I became a parent to feel comfortable doing that. And so I took a break when my youngest was born and I had this like gnawing, like I just knew that I wanted to get into health and wellness professionally because this entire time, most of my life, as far as I can remember, I was always the person who either talked to people about what they were eating or what they were doing or the new thing, or I was the person that people would go ask advice from. And so at some point I'm like, this is my calling. And so in 2010, I got certified from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, I think mm-hmm. you or Trisha, one of you. Yeah, Trisha, Trisha went there. And I went when it was still in person. So I did a hybrid of virtual yeah. person. It was awesome. And I was really focused on everything that people were eating. Like the advice I was giving, the conversations I was having were all about like what was on your plate. And at some point in like 2012, 2013, I realized there was a missing piece here. There's a missing piece for me. And there's a missing piece with all these like really incredible, very savvy people I was working with. And that missing piece was mindset. Mm. And I know that overlaps a lot with what you do, Dora. Mm-hmm. You could be eating like all the kale and the superfoods and the quinoa. But if you're stressed out about whether you're doing it right or worried about what it's going to do to you, or just having these anxious thoughts about food. We can talk about what happens to you physiologically, but it's not healthy. 
So mm. I just realized there were so many people living in that chronic state of like low level stress about food and eating and body. And that was where I needed the most support. So I got certified in eating psychology in 2013. I really dug deep into my own personal food story and healed my own relationship with food. And I got the tools to help other people. And so since then, my work has been, I always say like I help people with what's on their plate and what's in their mind. Hmm. So it's a little less personal what I just shared with you, but that was how I ended up where I am today. I love that because you're so right. The health of the mind is equally as important as the health of the body. And it's really the whole picture to help people with how they eat and what they eat and all of that. I've been a follower of Kale and Chocolate, which was your wonderful website. It really was a gorgeous website and is with colors and it was just beautiful and amazing recipes. But now you're shifting and you're talking about food stories. So what is a food story? Kale and Chocolate will always be a part of me. And it's like I say, even now, food is the doorway for people. They'll come for the food. I want that recipe or I want to learn how to eat for immunity or whatever it might be. But then we always go deeper. So I think that I'm just in the next chapter with the work that I'm doing. And food is definitely at the core of it. And I still love beautiful food and creating recipes and all of that. But you're right. I'm in a new chapter. I've evolved. My brand has evolved. And so I want to share with you how I came up with the concept of food story. Yes. And because I think that really explains a lot about it. So I was seeing clients, like I mentioned back in 2013, and I become certified in eating psychology. I was so excited to work with them and dig deep and learn more about their mindset around food and their relationship with food. So we'd start working together and I'd say, so tell me about your relationship with food. And people would come in and they would, you would see, like physically see their shoulders drop. It was almost like I put people up against a wall. It was a dead end. They were like thinking about themselves and food. I'd get these very clipped responses like, it's complicated. Oh, let's not go there. Or, oh gosh, please. And it felt like just them and food. So I knew that I had to reframe it. And this was, like I mentioned, 2013, Brene Brown was big in the conversation. and. Oprah was talking about story and there was a lot of people talking about money story. I'm like, wait, we have all these stories. We have a food story. And so I started to really think about what is a food story? It's like a lifetime of messages, of memories, of likes and dislikes. And there's different chapters and there's different characters and heroes and villains and plot twists. And I'd ask people, tell me about your food story. And almost everybody said, huh. I never thought about it like that. And they became mm -hmm. a lot less like defensive or shameful because it was suddenly more dynamic. There was flow. And, you know, with a story, it's ongoing. It's evolving all the time. So it really stuck. And I think it gave people like they could connect the dots looking backwards and also help when they thought about where some of their limiting beliefs or unwanted health and eating challenges came from, they could release some of the shame that we all feel around our behaviors mm -hmm. that we're not proud of. And so that's how Food Story was born. So you've written this wonderful book called Food Story, Rewrite the Way You Eat, Think and Live. 
honestly, I hope everyone will run out and buy it because it's a beautiful book, but it's so practical and you go through all the different phases of learning your own food story and then rewriting it. And then, of course, you move into your beautiful recipes. It's a stunning book, I have to say. But your own personal food story I found really interesting. And you almost lost your marriage because of it. Well, yeah, I almost didn't get married because of it. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about your own food story? And maybe that can help others think about their own. We really do connect and think about our own stories when we hear other people's, even if it's not exactly the same, it could trigger a memory or there could be some thread that is similar or overlapping. And so I, I, that's why I have my podcast, um, Once Upon a Food Story, and why you do yours. We all share our stories and we feel connected. So I mentioned already that I grew up in Los Angeles and that in and of itself was very telling. I was like very body conscious and my family was into like fat free. I went to an all girls school and I go into it a little more in the book, but really I became obsessive with finding the perfect diet. I don't even like to say this out loud, but had this belief at one point in my life that if I follow the perfect diet, then I'll have the perfect body and it'll help me have the perfect life. I can't even believe I'm saying it out loud, but that is what I thought. And everything became, I just became so fixated and it makes me sad thinking about it. When I grew up, I tell this story in the book, I went to a doctor when I was nine years old and the doctor said that if you lose five pounds, you could get your ears pierced, something I'd been begging my family for. And nobody had any bad intentions. I think we all do things the best we can with what we have and things change, but that stuck with me. And then at the same time, my dad would get up in the middle of the night and sleep, eat, and be unaware of it and wake up in the morning and feel terrible. So to curb his late night snacking, he started locking the refrigerator every single Mm. night. And he would call from the bottom of the stairs, want anything before I lock up? And, you know, it was like all in good humor and it was about him. It wasn't about us. But you can imagine that as kids, like learning, like food really needed to be controlled and kept under lock and key. So that's my background, you know, and of course there were a lot of joyous family meals, but there was a lot of pain and then there was Mm -hmm. a lot of striving. And when I was in law school in Washington, D.C., I had a boyfriend who is now my husband. And we were out at a celebratory dinner. We were in a relationship for a few years. We had already talked about marriage and having kids. You know, it was pretty far into the relationship. And we were at dinner and it was like a fancy, where it was, you will know the inn at Little Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just like not really my style, but still that doesn't matter. I should be able to go anywhere and celebrate. And I was doing the thing, like pushing the food on the plate. It was cream sauce. It wasn't what I ate. It didn't fall into my rules. And he was visibly getting uncomfortable. It's like my stress that I thought was only existing inside my own head was not. Mm. That was like a huge wake up call. So at the table right then and there after the chef came out and said, Madame, is there something wrong? Because everybody finishes their plate here. And so the whole thing was so uncomfortable. It was like what I called the celebratory dinner gone bad. And he just looked at me and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch you. It's 
painful for me. It's not just you. It's affecting mm-hmm. me. I grew up with a family that like food was food and we came together at the table and it wasn't like there weren't these like big rules and issues. It was just nourishment and pleasure and love and connection. And so he broke up with me at the table. And that's a story I tell in chapter one of the book, because I think it is also really telling for a lot of us who have this inner narrative that's we're not relaxed or we have stressful thoughts or we think that they exist only in our own minds, but Mm. our kids can feel it. The people you're eating with can feel it. And so it's all energy. And I think that understanding our food stories are connected to one another is really huge. I think that's so true because I even know in my own case, my mom used to tell a story about when she was growing up and she had a jar of marshmallow. I forget what it's called. But anyway, fluff. She was walking down the street and one of her neighbors saw her and told her mother and her mother just shamed her for that. And that stuck with her. And my mom had struggled and projected it onto me. So food stories can be passed down. And I know that food stories, I just know from personal experience that we repeat them over and over that it's a cycle that's hard to get out of. So how do you change your food story? I just wanted to acknowledge something that you said about the fluff story, because so many times in our lives, we think about a trauma, something really huge and monumental Mm. happening, but like that is a trauma that stays with you. Like my dad locking the refrigerator, your mom walking down the street with fluff and feeling, you know, bad about it. Those are like traumatic events in our food story. I had a podcast guest who talked about how she was teased on a bus for her body when she was in kindergarten and it stuck with her into adulthood. Mm. I think that awareness of just realizing where it came from is such a great way to lift the shame around it. Also, you know, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, have you ever talked about Mm -hmm, it on this podcast? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's just all about like how your cells remember, your body remembers. The actual act of writing is such a great release. So if you wrote down something, which the book has many prompts and questions to help the readers do that, it's a great way to get it out of your body and Mm -hmm. move it from your body onto the page and you see it and you're like, okay, that was my story then. It's not my story now. Or for a lot of people, I get it. Now I understand why I do the things that I do. So when you have a bad food story or just your food story growing up, there are so many negative connotations to food. So you learn that food becomes this negative thing. And so eating, I think, goes from a natural thing as a child before all the food stories become embedded. And it becomes just hard. What do I eat? How do I eat? It becomes not joyful. So how do you shift your thinking from these negative thoughts about food, what am I going to cook for dinner, to the positive things that food can do for you, like your husband growing up in a joyful environment at the table. How do you figure that out? And what are the positive things food can do for you? I love all, there's so many layers to your question, (laughs) but I think if I was going to give you like a very short clipped answer, it would be, that's what my book is all about. That is actually what it is. And I want to just, the caveat is that, of course, none of this is going to happen overnight. And like healing isn't linear. 
there'll be days where you feel like I've got this. Now I, you know, I'm thinking about food in a new way, but then there'll also be days where you, for example, when we're going through a pandemic where people will suddenly fall back into old mindsets or habits. And that's why it's a story. There's always, Mm -hmm. you can always move on to the next chapter. So I think the awareness part, which is really like the discovering your food story, that's the first section of my book is really huge because so many of us have not ever really thought about why we have the limiting beliefs we do or why food might feel confusing or overwhelming, or I try to stay away from bad, but negative or Mm -hmm. even people might have fear around food. And so I think that the awareness is always the first step because so often we have these repetitive thoughts. We're not even conscious of them. So really like being honest with yourself, what do I think? And then understanding where it came from is always huge too, because mm. like I said, that's where you can say that was my story then, or there, or you can make the connections. Aha. Now I see why I do what I do, but you, I can do things. It's up to me. I can do things differently. I'm going to just tell a story because I think it'll illustrate how someone can go from being stuck to feeling a little bit more free and open, which by the way, the whole last part of my book is all about living your new food story and doing Mm -hmm. little things every single day so that you are more connected back to yourself. Because when you're thinking all those negative thoughts or you're constantly looking outside of yourself for the experts to give you the answer, you're not, Mm -hmm. you know, trusting your body. And I'm sure you've talked about this, but that's a huge part of really understanding all the benefits of food is seeing what is it doing for me? Well, I'm going to just tell a quick story. And then I want to talk about that question about what food can do for you. So I had a client who she'd have a cycle of like overeating and then restricting, overeating, restricting. And when she would overeat, it was pretty much of a binge, but she didn't ever get classified as a binge eater. And so when we were working together, like really she would go to fast food, like places she wouldn't normally go and just eat almost numbed out completely. And so we traced it back. I asked her, when did this all start? And it started when she was like 13 or 14 years old, but which is the same time she was going through puberty. And her dad got really uncomfortable with her changing body. I would make comments like you shouldn't be eating that, or that's not really good for you. Why are you going for seconds? Just things like that. So she started hiding her food. She started eating in secret and became her pattern into adulthood. And when she came to me, she's like, I want to change this part of my food story. It's like ongoing. I'll get over it and say, I'm not going to do it again. But then I just repeat this cycle. No one had ever, when did it start? Where did it begin? Was there a point in time? And when she understood exactly where it came from, she knew that we had to help her repair that part of her life. And so she wrote a letter. She did not give it to her dad, but she wrote a letter to her dad about how it made her feel. And she got all of that out of her system. Mm-hmm. And she just, she chose not to give it to him and she forgave him, but it was such a release for her to understand. And I think you had mentioned about food, what food can do for you. Mm-hmm. So I love that you said that because the recipes in my book are all based on mood. And what I mean by that is that you look at the ingredients and you think about like, there are certain ingredients or nutrients that can help you feel calm. There are certain ingredients that can help you feel more radiant or sensual or that are just uplifting and mood boosting or some that can help you feel more focused. And I chose to put the recipes all by mood because I felt like a lot of the readers have tried everything and 
feel frustrated with food and that this was a different science backed and fun approach. And it's flipped the script and put on a new lens instead of thinking, what is food going to do to me? You're like, what can it do for me? I did notice that you have recipes that make you feel more focused or strong or happy. Those are good moods that we want to tap into. And so rather than eat when you're depressed or feeling low, that we can just say, hey, I need to feel a little happier and I need to see what I can eat that's going to boost my good moods. Mm -hmm. But I do have a question. Why are we so food obsessed in this country? And is this something that women struggle with more than men? Or what have you seen? I did write my book for women, I have to say. But every time I'm with, I'm, I've done a book signings or talks, and there's, there are men there, I'm like, they have, everybody has a food story. We all have a food story. Mm-hmm. I noticed that there's a lot more targeted ads, but I think it's everybody. I think we're all like influenced by the media, but women typically feel it more. I think that my book is for women also because of my experience too, and because of the people I've worked with. And that's where I felt the most comfortable writing, but I do have two sons and their food story was, is really important to me and was important to me as a mom to pass on a really healthy and good food story to my boys. There's a whole anti-diet culture. I don't know if you've talked about Mm -hmm. it on the podcast Mm -hmm. at all. I have a term that I use and I call it food noise Mm -hmm. because we we are inundated with food noise. From the moment we wake up, we open social media or listen to the news. There's just food noise everywhere. You might have food noise in your house and not realize it with some of the books that you've used or the diets you've tried that every time you walk past it, you like subconsciously feel bad about it. That protein powder that you have in your kitchen from a detox that you did however many years ago and you couldn't follow through with it and felt bad about yourself. So there's just food noise all around us. It's from our friends who may be the best intention, but they're constantly talking about the new, whatever, greatest, latest thing that they're trying. And now I think that it's even trickier Like before we would talk about diet a lot, but now it's getting masked as the detoxes and the cleanse and the plans and the lifestyles. I think that there's trickier ways of talking about the same thing and that I want people and the reader specifically in my book to be alerted to this food noise that is all around us. It's not going away, unfortunately. And I think there might be a little bit better movement with the health at every side, you know, like people being less worried about skinny and all of that, but, and embracing how you want to feel, but it's not going away and it might come be disguised in some other way. And I want people to be aware of where it's coming from in their lives. And it doesn't mean you have to not surround yourself with it, but if you know that's food noise and that's not really your body talking to you, then your response to it is what matters, how you react to it. I think that's such a good way to classify it because you're so right. Like I'm even looking over in my kitchen and I see all the supplements that came with the fast that I did eight years ago. And there is some shame that comes like, oh, I can't stick to that. And I think with the gender issue in food, I mean, I know with my own son, we call him Big Rob. 
And it's okay. It's almost a badge of honor for a guy to be big, big gut, big rock, even though he also struggles with his food story. You'd also talk in the book about stress. So I'm curious, what do you do to reduce stress and what do you recommend? Yeah. So I talk about stress in in also a different way. And I know that I'm speaking your language with all the mindfulness (laughs) and the meditations that you do. But sometimes we have stress around food that we don't even realize. And one of my huge wake-up calls in my food story after the breakup, the next wake-up call, was that I was trying so hard to be an example for my family or for my community, my growing community when I started my website and my wellness brand. And so I put so much pressure on myself. And when you do that, like to follow the you know perfect diet or to be healthy or to get this wellness thing, or be the perfect mom or whatever it might be, that actually affects our cortisol levels. And I'm sure this has been a conversation you've had, but in a nutshell, when you're having these stressful thoughts and while you're eating, especially your body isn't functioning optimally, your digestion is impaired, your metabolism slows down you don't assimilate all your nutrients and you're not even getting the pleasure from your meal. It goes back to that original fight or flight, what happens to us. And this is true, whether your thoughts are true or not, this happens. It's all what you believe, what's in your mind. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people to understand that when you come to the table in a much more relaxed state, and I'm talking about relaxed, not fearing food, not feeling, oh, this is overwhelming, confusing. But hey, I'm so lucky I get to eat this beautiful, nourishing food. When you have that state of mind, when you're actually conscious and you're not on your phone and your body works so much more efficiently. And so I spend two chapters going Mm. into all of this because it's so important. There's also stress that we all have, like just stress. It's a fact of our lives, no matter what. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people talking about stress relief. But the one thing that I feel like I do a little differently is I try to help people have these micro mood boosting activities throughout the days. The analogy I want to give is if you do meditation in the morning, it's going to set your day off great. And if you have a good breakfast in the morning, you're going to feel great. But then by the time three o'clock or two o'clock or whatever it comes around, you're not going to expect your breakfast to carry you through. You're going to eat another meal, right? The same thing with these sort of micro mood boosters or calming activities or whatever you want to call it. You can't expect what you do in the morning, your exercise, your meditation, whatever, journaling to last all day. So I like to have people just the way they eat throughout the day to have these activities, these stress relieving activities, and they can take two minutes. It doesn't have to be, you know, a whole long practice, three deep breaths. That's it. I love that because you're right. By the time three o'clock comes, and you're working all day and you're tired. And by having these little mini practices, it just reminds you to be here now and to just stay so you don't spin off. And God knows what happens when that happens. (laughs) You mentioned perfection and perfection really is a curse. Can you talk about that just for a second? It's funny because That has definitely been my story. And as proud of the fact that I'm not caught up with that with food, if I'm being 100% honest with you, I don't think, I don't know, I can't say ever, but 
for me, I see it show up in different parts of my life. And it's just, you're constantly striving. That's a stress. It's an assault almost to your system because you're never going to be satisfied. And so I really catch myself. I'm aware of it all the time. I, it's not around food and body that I've gotten past that. I've written a different chapter in my food story, but just when I put something out there, I make sure. And I think there's a fine line for all of us. There's a pendulum. Like one is unaware, one side's unaware, the zero, and then 10 is hyper aware. And being on that 10 for anything, is just not healthy. It creates that stress response. It makes it so that we're never really satisfied. Mm. It's that not good enough. And I just have to constantly, is this reading this over for a hundred times really going to make a difference? Are people even going to know, you know, like, why am I doing this? You know, stop. And so I do have the conversations with myself. It makes me think about our negative self-talk and how you strive to be perfect. And when you're not, then that accelerates those negative thoughts, which I imagine those micro moments you're talking about really help open up a little space for good things to come in to our minds and avoid some of that. You know, if you catch yourself spiraling, just change rooms or change, you know, go outside, get into nature if you can, because it it disrupts those spirals and that negative self-talk like you were talking about. You have to have a way to be proactive so that you can flip that switch. A couple of questions about nutrition. And I know that at IIN, they talk a lot about bioindividuality, what might work for you, might not work for me, and so on. But there's a lot of talk lately about gluten. And so do you have any thoughts on gluten? I don't personally have rules that anything is off limits because then it becomes more coveted. But do I think that most of the food we eat in the States with gluten is processed? Yes. I know a lot of people feel better, but I'm wondering if they feel better because they're removing the processed foods and they're more, you know, feel better removing gluten. I personally love, love like a really green, like ancient grain sourdough bread. It's fermented so that you it's pre-digested and so you can it's easier on your system but that has gluten and so if i had my rules no gluten without any medical reason then i would never be able to enjoy that bread and even in the the blue zones that do you follow that at all yes of course dan butner yeah he's amazing but sourdough is one of the um, foods that is common in all of or, or many of the blue zones they eat sourdough bread but i think Food as close to its natural state as possible is always a good idea. And I think that our bodies will naturally crave that if that's what we give to it. But I also don't want to have like crazy rules that make you want it more. What I also like about your book is that it's very educational. And you talk a little bit about the gut health and microbiome. And we're hearing a lot about that lately. Why is it important and how do we take care of our guts? What I'm mostly drawn to is the whole gut-brain connection and how so much of our serotonin, just the conversation that the gut is a second brain and the conversation, it's bi-directional and the brain and the gut are so connected. And so oftentimes when people start taking care of their gut, 
mm-hmm. then they can think clearer, their mood is enhanced. And it's because of, now I'm not a specialist with this, but just because of the way that our culture with the antibiotics and just the excessive hand washing and everything that we, we're almost like too clean, you know? And so we need those good gut bacteria to be able to restore all the flora and have that connection. But my personal interest is also if you are strengthening the connection between your gut and your brain, does that also mean that you're going to pay more attention to those gut feelings? Mm. You know, and that's where I'm interested in the emotional aspect of it all. Because how many times have you felt it? You can feel that, right? And then ignored it. Mm-hmm. Even just the other day, I said to my husband, I should have trusted my gut. Exactly. So the holidays are coming. How do we navigate the holidays with our healthy food story? How do we do it? Mm. Is it are they hard for you, the holidays? The holidays are very hard for me. Like Thanksgiving will come and I'm like, I can eat whatever. I'm going to I'm going to overeat because it's Thanksgiving or this week is a holiday week. So I'm going to eat whatever I want this week and just not feel good. It's just sort of part of my food story cycle. For some people that might be like, this is what I do. And then I know I'm not going to, I might be a little bloated or uncomfortable once a year. And then I move on and get back into my body and do what feels good. I have a chapter in my book and I think it's one of my favorite chapters. I'm not sure you just bought your book, so you might not have gotten to it. It's Mm -hmm. called Let Yourself Be Human. Mm. And that's really about giving yourself permission to live. And I know for some people, it's a fine line like between living and feeling good. But if we are so restrictive or so worried, like we really do miss out. I missed out on, on like connecting with people at the table for years because in my mind, I was calculating calories or whatever it was, carbs, whatever it was, or stress that I wasn't following my plan. And I think that nourishment comes in so many different forms. If you can gather and connect with people around food and maybe it's not the healthiest choices, and I want to put that in quotes, but you're being nourished in other ways and eating the grandmother's pie Mm-hmm. feels really good to your soul. I think that we have to redefine what nourishment means to us. I think a lot of people struggle with guilt this time of year, too, mm-hmm. food guilt. And I just, I have an issue with it because I think people can make a choice. If they want to eat the food, then they should just eat the food and say, I'm eating the food and feel good about it. But to eat the food and then feel bad about it is so counterproductive, right? Because you don't even get to have a pleasurable experience. You're just consumed with these negative thoughts. So either say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go back for seconds. I'm not, and it's not deprivation, but I hate how I feel. And then you make that decision. Or if you say, love it, do it once a year, then stick with it, but don't feel bad afterwards. I think that a lot of it is just talking to yourself and saying, this is the way that I want to approach it. And then if you can be proactive and feel confident and good with your choices, then you just move on. Yeah. A day of eating the healthy, I hate using that word, but whatever, or it's not going to, you know, it's just a day. And the alternative is missing out on your life as you're living it. Yeah. Because the whole time you're worried about you and then you eat it and then afterwards you feel bad. I mean, 
the whole experience is you might not, you might as well not have even been there. Yeah. My son is a phenomenal, my oldest cook maker. When he was a little kid, he would make these things, cookies, cakes. It wasn't he, now he makes food that I love, but I made a decision. Like I wanted to see his face light up when I tried it and not say, Oh no, I'll try it later or make up excuses. And to me, that was much more important to have that connection with him and to try his food and not to be so worried about, you know, and, and so freeing too. Yeah. It's creating these positive experiences around food. I noticed reading through your website that you're big on picking a word. Oh yeah. Why is that important to you? And what is your word for this year that maybe this year we're in now? Oh, what's so funny that I have been doing this since probably 2013. And just yesterday, I was like, what? Because I've been caught up in the frenzy of the book launch. I was like, oh, I can't give this up. I've got to pick a new word for 2022. And I think it takes a little while. I always tell people, just think about it and don't overthink. But -hmm. sometimes you do need to marinate a little bit. And I've used so many good words. I don't want to repeat the words, but I've used evolve, which I think is a huge word for people to understand their food stories always evolving. And I believe that my word last year was bold, but I'm not <laughs> as a bold because I wanted, I felt like writing this book was bold, like going mm-hmm. bold and sharing my story. That's vulnerable. Those words always guide me and I come back to them. And sometimes I forget about them in the middle of the year, but then I come back to it. And I'm like, there's always a reason why you choose that word. And I feel like it makes sense as you go through it. What would be your word for this year coming up? Oh my gosh. Okay. I need to marinate. Maybe positivity because sometimes I tend to go down a rabbit hole. And if something in my life isn't going the way I want to, maybe I tend to get down. So maybe Mm -hmm. just looking for the good, looking for the positive. So maybe positivity. I like that. You know what? I don't want to commit. And I'm going to tell you what popped in my mind for me is momentum. Something you said made me think of it. I keep finding myself repeating that word that I have to keep like the momentum up. And and I think of it in the way that it's really easy to get discouraged too. It's easy to get discouraged during the holidays or to get discouraged if you're not seeing the results you want or if things aren't happening fast enough. And I just, I feel like I, I want to redefine momentum. That's probably not a common word of the year, but it just popped in my mind and I'm not overthinking and sharing. I like that. I want to end with just this question. What brings you joy? I really love sharing like my gifts, inspiring people to want to nourish their mind and body in the best way possible. Like the book, when I post on social media and I'm sharing like colorful, vibrant meals, I want to evoke something in people and wake them up so they're not asleep. But when I know that I've shared something, advice, whatever, a photo, anything, and it resonates, that makes me feel really good. It's not like a social proof thing, but it's just that I'm waking people up to that. My dogs are huge. I have to just say it. They're both on my feet right now, but they bring me a lot of joy. I love like cooking for my family and for people and just sharing food in a really positive way. Because as you mentioned, 
it's not always positive and there's a lot of sometimes fear or confusion or uncertainty. So that brings me a lot of joy. And being in nature and feeling like connected to my family, connected to the earth, connected just to the energy all around me, that is joyous. Elise, you are going to bring a lot of people joy with this book, Food Story. It's just, I think it's a gift and I'm so happy you sent it to me. And I look forward to sharing it with everyone. And we're just so grateful that you came on to share your food story and your life with us today. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Dora, for asking amazing questions and also for all the work that you do to help people feel healthier and happier. And I just really appreciate you and Trisha and this opportunity to be here. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.